Good morning. Well, my name is Brandon. Uh, I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Uh, as she said, we're in a series uh, in the book of First Corinthians, week two of a series in First Corinthians, and um, uh, Corinthians uh, written to a city, to a church in the city of Corinth. Uh, significant parallels both to our city and to our church that Corinth was a major economic hub, an urban center, much like uh, Houston. And the church was five years old, not much younger than uh, we are. Uh, and there was a presenting issue in the church of Corinth that uh, motivated Paul to write the letter. And that presenting issue was division. And this letter was this call to unity. But, but that presenting issue is presenting itself because there was a deeper issue. The deeper issue that this church in Corinth, this new five-year-old community, was being formed more by their in Corinth than their in Christ. They're being shaped by their city more than they were by their Savior. That was the deeper issue. And this week, um, this week Paul is going to um, continue, I think, laying a foundation that is this springboard into the rest of the letter. And in doing so, he's going he's to force a question upon us. It's an intensely practical question. Uh, it's a question that all of humanity has, has asked. It's one that we have talked about before, and it's this. What is, what is the good life? What's the life that you want? One commentator said that this, um, this letter of 1 Corinthians is uh, a, a letter written uh, to compete for the allegiance, the loves of the people in the church of Corinth. What we love the most, the life that we want the most, this fundamental philosophical human question, what is the good life? What is the life that you want the most? Most, not moth. Moth is not a word. Um, in Corinth, uh, this cutthroat competitive city where prestige and honor, it came with success, they had an answer. You ready? Upward mobility. It's good life. I'm esteemed. I'm Upwardly mobile in the city of Corinth, much like the city of Houston. In Corinth, as in Houston, prestige, honor, success, it was earned, not inherited. But here's the thing. Even, even the question, like, what's the good life? Like, what's the life that you want? Even that is a symptomatic question with a deeper uh, question sitting underneath it. And the deeper question that sits underneath it is really where Paul is going to take us. What's the lens that you see the world by? What's the filter? Like we're all wearing glasses, not just me. We're all wearing glasses. We're all looking at the world through something. What are we looking at the world through? Hey, church in Corinth, your answer to that is going to tell you. Or what what it is, the good life that you want, that, that'll tell you the lens that you're seeing the world through. Is it Corinth or is it the cross? What lens are we seeing the world through? And the text today is going to press the crucifixion of Jesus into our upwardly mobile culture, forcing the question, what, what, what's, the, what's the good life? And the answer to that will tell us, will tell you, will tell our community, are, are, are we reading the world through the lens of Houston, through the lens of the heights, through the lens of oil and gas, or you fill in the blank, or is it through the crucifixion of Jesus? But he begins, he begins with the logic of the cross. So let's go. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Stop right there. The word of the cross, the logic of the cross. Here it is. You ready? A crucified God. It's the logic of the cross. A crucified God. And crucifixion, first century, uh, wasn't something that you, you, know, you did cute paintings about. It was the most shameful, horrific way you could possibly die. The most shameful, horrific way you could possibly die. And the logic of the cross says that this utterly shameful way that you could die is the heart of God's redemptive plan. The heart of it. And so those who are perishing, it says, it's folly. The word folly, you want to know what that word is? Um, it, it's, the, it's the Greek word Mariah, um, the Greek word that we get our English word moron from. It was moronic. Like you're, you're at work, somebody says something, you're like, man, that guy's a moron. Or the lady. Ladies can be, I guess. Um, I'm not calling any of you that, for the record. <laughs> it, it was moronic. Utterly foolish. And it's saying that if you see the cross, if, if you look at the cross, the crucifixion of God, and to you, it is moronic. He's saying you are perishing. And now I need to pause here real quick because the, the simple thought of categorizing people as perishing, not perishing, is very offensive to our modern Western sensibilities. But if I could just, and I don't have time to really elaborate on this, but, uh, but, but if I could submit this to you, uh, it, it's in part offensive to, to, to probably many of us because we are modern and Western. If we were ancient or more Eastern, this wouldn't be nearly as offensive. But if we were ancient or Eastern, there would be other aspects of the Bible that were far more offensive than, there are, than they are to us as modern Western individuals, right? Which is in part how we know, or I shouldn't say how we know, I should say which is good evidence for the truth of Christianity, because if, if, if our faith of Christianity came from a particular culture, it would not offend that particular culture. It would offend the rest of them. But the gospel, Christianity, is equal opportunity cultural offenders. It offends everybody, just in different places. This is evidence for how we know uh, that it is plausible and true. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Power of God to do what? I think right here, this is a reflection back to verse 8 to sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is reflecting back on last week, and I won't do this for long, reflecting back on last week. This is Paul, pastoral, like speaking as a pastor to people. You crazy, broken, divided, Corinth, listen, even in all of your mess, it's going to sustain you to the end. It is the power of God to sustain you, Corinth. You, this community, needing to be formed more by Christ than by Corinth. Right now you're not. He will even sustain you. So two ways of seeing the cross, moronic or power to sustain. Now it keeps going. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Since, for since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. All right. 
So he, he moves from this opening statement into this, um, I'm pressing the crucifixion into uh, the culture of Corinth right now. And he gives three, uh, three groups of people, the wise, the scribe, the debater. Let me, let me tell you who those are. The wise, this is the Greek philosopher. This is the intellectual. And I'm too smart to believe. This is uh, the scribe, the Old Testament expert. This is the religious uh, expert. It right, doesn't fit with my conception or the debater, the skilled rhetorical speaker, socially esteemed. And so you've got the intellectual, you've got the religious, and you've got the socially esteemed. And for each one, each one of those categories, um, they, they would have been in their respective communities seen as wise and elite. And the Greeks who emphasized External strength and power, crucified Savior, was a contradiction in terms. And for the Jew, for the Jew who rolled back to Deuteronomy and said, no, no, you hang on a tree, you're cursed by God, a crucified Savior, a contradiction in terms. This was not wisdom, this was moronic. And the point is that what, the way God set it up was that human wisdom was insufficient to find God. Insufficient. Human wisdom Insufficient to find a God. But this, this brings us to a bit of a biblical um, collision here. Because Acts 17, Acts 17 says that you were created and placed in a particular area to seek and find God. So how does that work? How then do we find him? Not through horizontal human wisdom, but through what, what Paul calls the folly of what we preach. Um, and if I uh, could 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 be a bit of a Greek nerd for a moment um, and, and take us into uh, something that was divided in commentaries as to what he was saying here. Uh, the folly of what we preach is most literally the folly of preaching. The folly of preaching. And I think that obviously the content of what we preach, what, like Paul would never say, the content of what we have to say doesn't matter. Um, and I do think that the folly of what we preach is not a, a, a bad translation necessarily, but I think it misses a bit of a nuance and point uh, that Paul is trying to make. Paul writing, speaking into a city where rhetorical skill was esteemed and valued and prized. And he's saying, hey, listen, we, we didn't come with any of that. We, it's through the folly of preaching, through our simple message of a crucified Savior, it saved those who believe. We didn't come with your kind of baptized Corinthian culture. It was an other culture. Came, spoke into your culture, and redeemed and saved. Who? Who? Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So we've got Jews who want a miraculous sign. Give me a miracle and I'll believe. Greeks make it plausible. If I just don't have to check my mind at the door, I'm, I'm in. And for this, we've got religious, non-religious. We've got the, the religious who say, hey, listen, there's, there's a way that God operates and crucified God is not it. And then the Greeks who go, hey, there's a way that the world operates and crucified God is not it. This just simply does not fit either one. But, verse 24, but. One of the most beautiful words in the Bible is the word but. I was not making a teenage joke there. But to those who are called... That's you, Corinth. Hey, Corinth, 
Hey, you messed up, broken, divided church right now. It's you. It's you. So those who are called, it's you. That's you, sojourn, beloved brother, sister, that's you. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Some of you are religious, some of you are non-religious, and to both Christ, the wisdom of God, the power of God. And in that little phrase, the wisdom of God, the power of God, you know what's missing? A verb. A verb. The point is that Christ doesn't become something. He is something. He is the wisdom of God, the power of God in human form. He is something. And because he is something, foolishness of God, wiser than men, weakness of God, stronger than men. And uh, re remember, when you're reading the Bible, when you're reading Corinthians, as we navigate our way through Corinthians, this is not a theological treaty. It's not a series of individual teachings, right? Nor is it a series of teachings for individuals. It's a book about community formation. And so subtext it here. Subtext here. Remember you who were called. Remember. Remember. Look, go, go, go back and remember to those who are called. Jews and Greeks, religious, non-religious, remember this. Remember. Remember it. Why? So that you will not be more formed by Corinth than you are by Christ. Subtext. Be formed by him. He is wiser than men. He is stronger than men, even in what appears foolish and weak. He's saying, listen, don't, don't buy the lie. Like the upwardly mobile, esteemed life that is not the good life. And I get how tempting it is. I, I get it, Corinth. I understand. But it's not the good life. I think Paul would say to them, or maybe to us, there are things more important in this world than a promotion. There are things more important in this world than a promotion. Sometimes it can even be damaging if it infuses love for Corinth or love for Houston or love for this world, pulling us away from our formative life in Christ, there are things more important than a promotion and can even be damaging. And Paul, knowing this temptation, if we had time to go over to Philippians 3, we would walk through and read Paul and his, um, hey, listen, in my religious community, I was a rising star. Set it all aside for the sake of Christ. I get the temptation, which is why he goes where he does in verse 26, I think. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Listen, some of you were influential. Most of you were not. A few of you were. Not many of you are. God is not after the influencers. He doesn't need, like, high school varsity kid to, you know, start like a global redemptive movement. It's not what he's after. He's not after the influencers. If he was, it's not to say that God doesn't care about influencers or culture creators. It's not to say that at all. It's to say that God doesn't have like a strategic, I find the elites and then it trickles down from there like it's an economics deal. It's 
you, some of you, you're influential. Most of you, no, no, Corinth. I actually have no idea why that was funny. Uh, I'm lost, uh, but whatever, we'll move on. Um, if it was, if it was, if God was after the influencers, the church would be an exclusive club, but one where you earned your way in through social standing. But as it is, it's an inclusive club for all who believe. Jew, Greek, rich, poor, black, white, Asian, Hispanic. It's for all who believe. Verse 27. Here Paul in verse 27 is going to start to do something a bit theological. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Hang on to that word shame. But God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Verse 28, God, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Shame. It's an interesting word here. It's interesting because uh, when, I, when I read the word shame, it evokes thoughts of feelings and emotions and embarrassments, and I can't believe I did what I did. If anybody knew uh, what I did, I would, I would not be welcomed here, which is not true. But that's not what's going on here. This is not about feelings and emotions. Um, Gordon Fee, commentator, brilliant, says, Paul, Paul does not mean something subjective, the feelings of shame. Rather, he is picked up here on an Old Testament theme that expresses the vindication of God. So picking up on this Old Testament theme about vindication of God, the vindication of God that was coming, pairs it with this word, this phrase, for bring to nothing or literally to nullify. And Gordon goes on. The verb to nullify is what makes certain this is theological language, not philosophical. The verb occurs throughout 1 Corinthians in decidedly eschatological. So think end times that have broken in, not future, but that's a, probably a different sermon. Eschatological context to express Paul's conviction that in Christ, God has already set the future in motion, whereby the present age is on its way out and being done away with by God himself. He's saying in the coming of Christ, in Christ, when he uses this verb, he clarifies that what's happening is he's setting the future in motion in the coming of Christ. Eternity has broken in, which means that when we are in Christ, which last week we went repeatedly, which we're going to hit here in a second, the community, the church, community in Christ, we are a living foretaste of eternity to come. And eternity has a different view of power than Corinth. An eternal view of power is an upside down view of power, which looks like the life of Jesus healing the blind, caring for the beggar, loving the marginalized, making our way to those on the outside of society. It's an upside-down view of power. Why upside-down? Let's keep reading. So that no human being, verse 29, might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ. You are. All that we have, all that we'll ever be, all that we'll ever need, we will find in Christ. You who are in Christ, who became to us the wisdom of God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me summarize. No one, no one 
will stand in the presence of God and say, look at my 401k. No one. Praise God for your 401k if you've got one. I've got a 403b. We covered that last week. (laughs) Praise God for it. None of us will stand in the presence of God and say, look at the cash I racked up. None of us will say, hey, listen, um, I was a VP, God. Hey, Peter, I, I would have been a VP, but I got hosed. You know what that's like. None of us. We will not boast of ourselves in the presence of God. And in Christ, you have the highest position the world has to offer. You do. Like you might have a low social standing. You might be the marginalized in society. And if you are in Christ, you have the highest position the world has to offer. If your income is below the poverty line, but you have Christ, you have more than the billionaire who doesn't. And I wish we believed that. I wish we believed it. If you have Christ, you have more. And listen, I, I, I love my life. I do. I love it. I've got a beautiful wife. I've got four kids. I get to walk alongside you guys. Like when I, when I 360 my life, I just go, man, I'm incredibly grateful. <laughs> but all that I will need 10,000 years from now, I will find in Christ today. All that you will need 10,000 years from now, you will find in Christ today day in Christ who became our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, things that you simply cannot buy. You can't buy them. You can't buy these things. So that in a city, Corinthian city, known for their boasting, we will call it the Dallas of the first century. (laughs) Kidding, I love Dallas, yada, yada. Our boast is in our possession of him, not a house, not a bank account, not a 401k. It's in him that we might boast, boast in the Lord. That in Corinth, we have a message of a crucified God, crucified Messiah, pressing in to an upwardly mobile culture, redefining the good life, giving a new lens to see the world through the new boasting. But Paul's not done. He keeps going. In verse 1, chapter 2, and I came to you. And I, when I came to you, brothers, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is saying, listen, I, you know what I did? Let me tell you what I did. I came as a simple man, a simple message. And I brought the simple message of a crucified God into your upwardly, upwardly mobile culture. Because here's what I proclaimed to you. I proclaimed to you a downwardly mobile gospel. Why a downwardly mobile gospel, Corinth? Because we have a downwardly mobile God. From beginning to end, do you know what the Bible is marked by? God coming down 
Adam and Eve sin in the garden. What did God do? Came down and walked among the garden. Incarnation of the Son. What did he do? He came down. You know how the story ends? New heavens, new earth. God coming down and making a home with his people. See, the gospel is a real-time reflection of the heart of God. The heart of God to come down and invite you and invite me into the only truly upwardly mobile life there is. The one that we find in him. But God, for God, this inverted view of power where the way up is down. So when the cross becomes this downwardly mobile gospel that we live our life by. We have to ask the question, how do we live a downwardly mobile gospel in an upwardly, upwardly mobile culture? Well, we're going to get a hint uh, here at the end, but the real answer is we have to read the rest of the letter to find that out, which we're going to do. And I was with you, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I came preaching this message not with rhetorically impressive skill, so that, so that your faith might rest not in horizontal wisdom, but in the power of God. So that when you looked at life, when you, when, you, when you put your glasses on and you read life through them, you would read it through the lens of the cross, through the lens of this downwardly mobile gospel. That you might read it and be marked by it and shaped by it. You wouldn't be shaped by this upwardly mobile culture, but you might clash with that. That you might want to live a life in Christ, in the God who came down in a world that values esteem, prestige, and rising up that you might be marked, that your faith might be in him and it might rest in him, that deep soul rest, that where your soul finds satisfaction, it would not be in what a boss might think of me and how many rungs I can get up that ladder by the time I'm 50. But in what Christ has done for you, the crucified God, and that your boast might be in him, and that what you declare is meaningful, Life-shaping would be him. And that humility might mark you no matter what position you hold. Because here's the challenge. Not all of us, but some of us. The, the Lord is going to grant positions. Like we, we are going to be these upwardly mobile men and women in our community. And we're going to have to learn to be marked by the humility of the gospel even as we do get promotions. We're going to have to be willing to be marked by humility serving those even those that we compete with for jobs. If we're going to be shaped by the gospel and not by Exxon, we've got to be willing to serve those who might get promoted above us. And I know that's unpopular, but the gospel is unpopular. Downwardly mobile life in an upwardly mobile culture. When the cross redefines the good life becomes the lens that we see the world through. To quote Richard Hayes, the world can never look the same again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, sending your son into the world for us to redeem and form a community, a community in Christ. Would you shape us by that? Would you form us, sojourn, sojourn heights, not 
not by Houston, not by the Heights, but by being in Christ, by the gospel. May our faith rest in him, may our boast be in him, and may we believe, like as a community, may we actually believe, may we actually believe that if we have Christ, we have more than the billionaire next door. And would that just open our hands with what we have? Would we believe that all we need we have in Christ, all that we need 10,000 years from now, we're going to find in him? Would that open up our hands? Would that free us up? Not just our time, not just with our money, but just our lives. Willing to give them away. May that be us. May that be our little community. Boasting in a cross. Not ourselves. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.